Welcome to the Arena Decklist Podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson, joined as always by Brian Gottlieb. And preview season is done. It is over. They finally gave us some playable cards, and now we get to talk about the top 10 cards. Yes, it's time for the irrefutable, undisputable, unquestionable top 10 list that we put out. Of course, every set, and uh, always proves to be exactly right. Yeah, never mess up. Love it. Yeah. So we're, we're doing things a little bit differently this time. Uh, if you have listened to the cast before and specifically like these top 10 shows, you know that we've experimented a little bit with the layout of the show and everything. And we're, we're going to try something a little bit different, which I don't think solves any of the problems that we really had with top 10s. But maybe for like consumption, it makes things a little bit easier. Yeah, I I just think we're trying to like find a perfect solution to a presentation which by its nature has no perfect presentation. So we let's just keep trying things. This is fun. I, I like doing this. I think it was an interesting way to look at the set and maybe it will help our listeners build their decks. I mean, that's always the purpose of this, right? To kind of sort out what you should be paying attention to amongst all the noise of all these new cards. This is what you should be focusing on. And I think this does a good job of calling some other cards to attention that may not have gotten the highlight they deserve. That's true. So I I guess the nature of a top 10 list is just to be heinous, right? You know, Mm -hmm. you as a lover of lists and person who realizes that, you know, lists are kind of meaningless, right? Uh, Because there's a lot of context that doesn't go into things. Maybe, Maybe we are just supposed to keep it dirty, you know? Look, as as long as we're having a good time, that's all that matters. But keep finding new ways. I appreciated you found this way because it forced me to look at things differently. And that's really like any new lens you can use to analyze magic cards will almost always prove useful. And in the future, I'll probably run through a similar process as we deal with a new set. And I, I think it's important with this set too, because in some ways the non-rares are just as important in the rares in this as in this set, I think, because the rares are a little bit lower power level. Now you go to like Throne of Eldraine, even Theros, the mythics and rares were just head and shoulders above everything else. They defined not only this format, but multiple formats. But I realized I said this last set too, and I was proven pretty quickly wrong. This does feel like power level has been reined in a little bit. I don't think we have an Omnath style card but I said that last set too. And, and there's it, one card I have There's one card I have in my sights. Well, no, there's two cards I have in my sights actually, which I could see going pretty wrong. So we'll see. Well, for, for this one, we are doing a top 10 list of the rares and the mythics and then also a top five list of the non-rares. So part of this is because I think when you do a top 10, kind of what, what Brian mentioned is that a lot of the really important like role player commons just kind of get left out of it. And it doesn't paint really a complete picture for, for things like for how the set is actually going to impact standard. So for, for this set, I think it worked out well, but I could definitely see other sets where it's like, you know, maybe the the commons and uncommons are not super impactful or maybe the commons and uncommons are more impactful than a lot of the rares. And then you have this top quote unquote top 10 list that, is you know maybe like a top five list. So uh, play it by ear. Uh, could also just go back to a normal top ten list. Who knows? Anything's possible. Yeah. So we're gonna start 
with the commons and uncommons. And we have some honorable mentions too, because the power level for this set is is relatively flat. At least, you know, we perceive it to be that. So it's really hard differentiating between like a top five and a top 10. And there are some things that might not make the top five where it's like, well, on, on a good day, this could very easily be up there, right? Yep. So honorable mention is Jaspera Sentinel. So this is effectively number six, but like the wild card. And this is one of the cards that was previewed a little bit late. It is G for a 1-2 creature elf rogue. Rogue is interesting. Reach and tap and tap an untapped creature you control, add one mana of any color. I don't think anyone was super excited about Lone Dryad, but it did show up in uh, a fair amount of places and was not doing anything particularly fair when it did. One mana accelerants are a big deal. Even when they have hoops to jump through, you can still make them work. You change the entire dynamics of your mana throughout the game. This one has good types. Uh, Elf, really important type, potentially. Although, elves are a little dicey. But there's some other cards we're going to talk about a little later on that make Elf meaningful. Rogue is weird. Interesting, I think was your word for for rogue, but maybe you could find a home from that. And and the stats are kind of cool, like one two reach. Okay. It's unlikely this blocks a lot of things successfully and lives, but a chump against the big flyer is not something I would take all that lightly. Extra point of toughness on the back end means you have some protection from any type of plink effects. You have like a what's the red double face land? There's that spike I'm on. Spikefield Hazard, yes. A little protection from Spikefield Hazard is much appreciated. You know, I don't expect huge things from this card, but it has potential to be a good, solid role player and maybe be more powerful than it looks on its face. Yeah, there's uh, Kinnon, Bonder Prodigy. That's that, a great one. That curves pretty well into this and makes it worth the effort to try and turn this into a Land of Elves or Birds of Paradise or whatever. Uh, rogue matters for party stuff, which is more relevant if you're like, you know, green, white, go wide type of stuff. And reach matters when you start pumping your creatures, definitely. So sure. if, if that's kind of what you're trying to do too. But uh, I'm I'm more interested in trying to exploit this with Kinnon. Yeah, you, again, later on, we're going to talk some combo stuff, I think. And uh, it, it looks solid. And this card is going to play an important role there. Number five, Frostbite. R, Snow Instant. This deals two damage to target creature or planeswalker. If you control three or more snow permanents, it deals three instead. I I brought this up last time, and you did not seem very high on it, and I'm happy that I have actually seen people putting this into their decks. I think it's a solid tool. I anticipate it being more of a sideboard card than a main deck card, but we also talked a lot on our other preview shows about important breakpoints for the format. There's a lot of good three toughness creatures in this set in particular. Uh, and I think you're going to have to account for them from a bunch of different archetypes, particularly snow archetypes have a three toughness creature they really need to account for. Uh, so frostbite is going to be an important part of that, I believe. And again, I'm not thinking this takes over formats and becomes the de facto removal spell, but it's going to no, be an important not. tool in our, in our arsenal. Yep. Number four, Snakeskin Veil, G, instant, put a plus one, plus one counter on target creature you control. It gains hexproof until end of turn. I was happily putting Ranger's Guile into some of my sideboards. This is a significant upgrade and could potentially see main deck play if, you know, things kind of break right and there's a lot of spot removal around or maybe counter synergies matter. 
I think so. Yeah, I, I was pretty impressed by this card and not one I've really heard anyone talk about. And that's the nature of a card like this is it's not going to get anyone hyped. Uh, but like you said, Ranger's Guile, excellent card. And there's something interesting about permanent resizing of a creature and it combining with this effect because a lot of times this is going to be used to stop a red removal spell, maybe stop a frostbite. And that's good. It's great. You get your value when it does that. But if it's also stopping the next frostbite, because you've now moved your creature to four toughness as opposed to three toughness, well, now that card is super impressive to me and can just shut down Archetype's entire basis of responding to you. Uh, Like you mentioned, counter synergies are always present. They're not huge, but they exist. Uh, they were present in the last set. So I want to look into that a little bit. But you know, I was just thinking about how important Dive Down was as a card when it was legal in Standard. And it wasn't only in like mono blue tempo type stuff. It showed up in other spots too, where it's protecting important permanents. And in this set where a lot of the engines are moving on to creatures now, I see value in protecting your permanence, uh, protecting your Jorns and whatnot could be a really big game. So hugely excited for this card, even if it's a little under-assuming on its face. Yeah, and there's there's also stuff like Satessan Champion too. And yep. Yeah. If, if you want to do the whole kind of like protect the queen thing and your deck is more combo-centric, you know, think of Infected Modern, right? Then this thing exists. And obviously we, we did have Ranger Scout before, but this is a little bit stronger. Yeah, it, it seems like a small upgrade, but I think it's actually substantial. Number three, Usher of the Fallen. Dub to one creature spirit warrior. Boast one dub. Create a one one white human warrior creature token. A lot of two ones would have made the cut here just because I think the format is so desperate for them. Uh, particularly white really needs this card. And it's here, and it's better than I expected it to be. I think the boast ability, you know, not always going to be meaningful. Obviously, this gets brickwalled by basically everything. Uh, But you get a little wide with it, and if it does survive, even on empty battlefields, it can really snowball quickly, which is something these decks often need. If you're really in on small creatures, you need a way to rebuild uh, post-sweepers. If you're facing effective removal, you'll always appreciate the additional body. And the types are really good on this, too. So just a good, solid, uncommon creature. Yeah, Warrior matters for, again, random uh, party stuff. And I was actually disappointed that it made humans because they didn't work with Winota. Mm, yep. I, I think that's by design. That feels like a smart decision. Probably, probably. But it itself works with Winota. So that's a, a decent upgrade for a deck like that. Yeah. Number two, Behold the Multiverse. Three U, instant. Scry two, then draw two cards. Foretell one U. Now I think we're just getting into the space where like we're dealing with generally good cards that are going to be important in the format. Uh, this is the de facto draw two now. It's weird. I have some thoughts about Fortel. Uh, on the whole, I think it's mostly a miss with basically two or three exceptions. Uh, it's extremely, extremely mana intensive. Splitting costs among multiple turns is nice, but... I think we're underestimating the cost right now. So you really have to get a good return either on pure rate or on just like doing something at an unexpected time, doing something earlier than you possibly could. And Behold the Multiverse is doing a little bit of both those and its default mode is completely fine. We've played it before happily, maybe not happily, but we've played it before. It's good enough for standard and I expect this to be the default card draw for a lot of more controlling looks at the format. 
Yeah, I'm kind of disappointed in Fortel as a mechanic, just in general, because it really accomplishes very little. Interesting. So when I first saw it, I don't know if listeners will remember this. A few weeks back, we talked about a desire to create half mana costs and how useful it would be in terms of costing things effectively and really getting them at sweet spots on curves. And I think this was a decent way to do that, but it feels like they played it really safe. Uh, there's just not a ton of power in these Fortel cards. And even the ones that are good are doing very predictable things, things we've done before. Nothing really exciting. It's just they're doing them at different mana costs than we're used to. And that can be really good in some spots. It can be really meaningful. Or it can just be like a slight upgrade. This is closer to the slight upgrade side of things. But in a lot of cases, it just didn't do a whole lot for the card's efficiency. Yeah, so I I think that the added efficiency definitely is felt on a card like this, where having to invest four mana, which is a really pivotal turn in a lot of standard games in your card drawing thing, is not necessarily something you you, you can always do. So being able to like play this and then hold open essence scatter if your opponent like does something that's like super scary, I think is good and it, it does make it so much better than previous iterations of this card. But just, you know, what what happens to your foretell cards after turn two? And yeah. a lot of the time it's just like, well, they they just exist. You know, you just you hard cast them a lot of the time. And it's like, okay, I, I really don't get it then. Yeah, the delay is almost surprising. Again, I, I think if they just played it very safe, I think the inability to foretell something and then immediately cast it points to that. But you wonder if because that clause is there, some of the costing could have gotten a little bit more aggressive. I don't know. I'm not I'm not expecting a lot from Fortel in Constructed, but like I said, exceptions, and this is one of them. Number one, common and uncommon that I just assumed was rare, Binding the Old Gods to BG Saga. Chapter one, destroy target non-land permanent and opponent controls. Chapter two, search your library for a forest card, put it onto the battlefield tap, then shuffle your library. And chapter three, creatures you control gain death touch until end of turn. I think it's just wild that this is an uncommon. And I don't I don't blame you for mistaking it for a rare because everything it's doing feels it feels rare to me. I mean, the versatility of this removal spell is unparalleled. You get everything. And you think back to like playing Vraska's Contempt, which could only get creatures and planeswalkers at a similar amount of cost. Obviously an instant. And I'm not trying to discount that, but the type of versatility this card is providing merits its slowdown from instant to sorcery but then the card just replaces itself and not only does it replace itself so like you know it could just have draw a card attached to it and that would be swell but it's a ramp spell at the same time that's doing a lot for a four mana uncommon the third step of the saga unlikely to be super impactful but we talked about death touch and tramplers uh that could be really essential for breaking through and there are several meaningful tramplers in these colors. So I, it wouldn't surprise me if that comes up from time to time. Of course, this won't be the last time you hear me mention you can blink this with Urian. I think that is a very important interaction as well. But there's just a lot of really good boxes checked by this card where I I think, I think that if this card just existed, green, black, two colorless sorcery, destroy target, non-creature permanent, that could see a very small amount of play. A very small amount of play. 
But I think this card is way better than that. And the fact that it grabs like your triumphs as well is just a huge point in its favor. I did some stuff in my article on Star City this week where essentially splashing for this card and able to do so very happily because it did such a nice job of cleaning up my mana and then not really being scared off of playing two pip like black cards in my splash deck because I know my first pip goes to binding the old gods and I'm going to go get a triome and then be safe for the rest of the game. So if I needed something late that was two pips, I was very comfortable doing that as well, which is a, a weird feature for your versatile removal spell to provide to your deck. So I'm super high on this card. If it was if it was a rare, it still would have been my top 10, quite frankly. Yeah. Full disclosure, one of the other top 10 lists that we experimented with, uh, you know, the ideas that we shot around was top 10 cards that interact well with Urian and Kaldheim. Yeah, but there were too many, so we couldn't actually narrow that down to 10, and we had to let that idea go. Yeah, it's 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 a solid 15, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I agree with basically everything that you said. I, I think that the, the card is very solid. Uh, when previews started coming up, uh, Kaya was one of the cards that people were just like, meh. And I was like, well, this says, this says destroy target non-land on it. And we mm-hmm. wanted we wanted this effect as a, a sideboard option a lot of the time. And now you just get it on a card that's like very, very main deckable and like ramping basically from five to seven, right? Because you don't ramp until the next turn. Yeah. Unless, it seems- unless uh, there's a way around that. We'll talk about that when we get to the next card, but. Okay. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal, but when a lot of these decks scale so hard, I think it I think it matters a lot. Yes, I think you're exactly right. And there's real seven drops, there's real six drops in this format that you do want to be playing. Uh, the fact that this is a permanent, too, I, I wouldn't sleep on that. Like, the Urian thing is obvious, but there's also Trail of Crumbs and In Search of Greatness and a lot of things that need to interact with permanence. And the fact that your removal spell is stapled to a permanent can be just as much of a boon as it can be a weakness. Yeah, definitely true. Uh, So on to the rares, we have a few honorable mentions. One of them is Herald Unites the Elves, 2BG Saga, Chapter 1, Mill 3 cards. You may put an Elf or Tyvar card from your graveyard onto the battlefield. Chapter 2, put a plus one, plus one counter on each Elf you control. Chapter 3... Whenever an elf you control attacks this turn, target creature and opponent controls gets minus one, minus one until end of turn. Brian brought this to my attention before the cast. Uh, Take it away. Well, not super excited about returning any elves. We did a deep dive on elves in the format. They're there. There's some okay ones. There's just Barra Sentinel that we mentioned before. Uh, There's the new Burglar Rat. So there are elves out there. Maybe somebody wants to do something with this just plain fair, uh, but it appears a broken combo has turned up and I'm, I'm going to put broken in quotes. Yeah, slow your roll on broken, yeah. buddy. Okay, broken goes in quotes. That's a very important feature of using the word broken these days. What you do is you get two of the snow changeling weird thing morite of the frost and if you're not familiar with this one, I don't blame you. Two colorless green, blue, blue, legendary snow creature, shapeshifter, changeling. So that means Herald can return this card uh, onto the battlefield in its step one. But what this does when it enters the battlefield, you may have Morite of the Frost enter the battlefield as a copy of a permanent you control, except it's legendary and snow in addition to its other types. And if it's a creature, it enters with two additional plus one, plus one counters on it and has Changeling. Now, put two of these in your graveyard. Use Herald Unites the Elves to bring one back. You've just made yourself a loop. 
and you can go ahead and put your entire deck into your graveyard. Of course, we know Thassa's Oracle exists. You can win the game on the spot, but you're also doing some other stuff. Our buddy, Yo Man 5, of course, brewing decks as always for preview season, working on his 50 decks. Uh, he was building around a, what's the name of the card, Gerald? Do you know it offhand? It's a, a Theros Common, I believe. Sage of Mysteries or something? I don't know. Sage of Mysteries sounds close. Basically, whenever an enchantment enters the battlefield, you can mill yourself or your opponent. So you can just mill your opponent out if you start looping these enchantments together. You and I discussed builds around this theory. We don't have anything that we think is good enough yet. I, I think it's a little clunky. Relying on Thassa's Oracle is challenging because it has to be either on the battlefield or in your hand. So there's a lot of hurdles that this deck is going to have to overcome. But when you put together a combo like that, which is pretty compact, pretty small, and does something very powerful, you can't ignore it. You have to pay attention to it. You have to do your due diligence, sort out whether there's something there. And every card that gets printed is going to be like, okay, is this the thing where now this interaction is exploitable? And while I don't believe we're there yet, there's something to this. It's it's very, very tight, very compact, which is what I look for when I'm doing these type of combos. And I think you can fit it in a bunch of different decks. Maybe it'll be uh, a mid-range deck built around Blood on the Snow, or maybe it's a more elf-based aggro slash combo deck. But there's a lot of paths to go down. I don't think any of them are figured out yet, but I wanted to make sure our listeners knew about this. Yeah, it's it's tough for me to see this being like a real thing, because so like it, it's it's sort of a one card combo. You just need two copies of the clone in your graveyard, and then you cast the saga to mill your mm-hmm. deck. But but then what do you do, right? And that's that's kind of the problem. So in order to actually win, you need uh, Thassa's Oracle. That I guess you can have it on the battlefield because the last clone can just copy it. Yep. Or or the sage on the battlefield. So then it's, it's a two card combo. And all these cards are like kind of bad. Also, you need two copies of the clone in your graveyard somehow. So it's the requirements are actually pretty strenuous, I think. And it also just means that you have to play like a lot of these kind of bad cards in your deck because none of these cards are really going to be great on their own. I think like Yo Man was doing a good job of trying to make Sage be the setup card because you're you know, playing Timur Calls of the Dead and some enchantments at Mill Yourself in order to try and deposit the clones near your graveyard and stuff. So I like that approach. I'm not sure if that's the best way to go about it, but it seems it seems pretty like resource intensive for me uh, yeah. to just be like, yeah, this is a busted thing. Yeah, it's also going to be hard for it to just like ever be the best thing because it's pretty easily hateable, quite frankly. Like any good graveyard hate messes it up. Uh, removal on Sage is totally fine. So there's a lot of vulnerable pieces that this can be targeted by. So maybe it could have a moment where it steals a tournament, but it'll be hard for this to actually take over a format or anything super oppressive. So it looks very scary on its face. It seems very powerful. I'm not too concerned about it, but it felt like we wouldn't be doing our due diligence if we didn't point this out. So Agreed. Uh, also sounds real fun to play on Arena, right? Oh yeah, just an absolute delight. Uh, another honorable mention, Magda, Brazen Outlaw, 1R, 2-1, Legendary Creature, Dwarf, Berserker. Other dwarves you control get plus one, plus zero. Oh. Whenever a dwarf you control becomes tapped, create a treasure token. And you can sacrifice five treasures to search your library for an artifact or dragon card, put that card onto the battlefield, then shuffle your library. Unfortunately, not a lot of dwarves and not a lot of treasures in this set. And with 
very few exceptions, like not a lot of great vehicles, although there there are things like just bear sentinel to to tap this. So there are ways to actually make this into sort of a mana engine and just you kind of ignore the dwarf text, but I don't know. I, I think this is going to hit in a few different spots. My read, I'm, I'm going to speak for you here. You can correct me if I'm wrong. It feels like we both believe in this card in terms of just what it does and its rate and its potential, but neither one of us has a great home for it yet. Although I do like a certain list you're working on. We can talk more about that later. But it, it really is the first thing I've seen anyone produce where I'm like, okay, I believe this card is making a meaningful impact in this deck and really improving stuff as opposed to just being a card that I think has a lot of nice words on it, combines in a really nice way and has potential. You're the first person to actually act on it. So until I see more from this card, I'm not willing to have it on my top 10 list. Again, has to be an honorable mention though, because the potential is there. And I think you're starting to chip away at some of the things you have to do. You have to be sure to enable this card. You can't rely on an attacking. It's just not going to be able to do so routinely. And then you have to find a good dragon to put into play, but don't worry about that. We got you covered as we move through the top 10 list. Nah, you don't, you don't even need to sack five artifacts to do anything or sack five treasures to do something. I think just using this as another mana engine is completely reasonable. You may, you may not need to, but for the card to be used to its fullest, you're obviously going to be able to make some use of that. And I think your deck does a good job of doing both sides of it. Like you're able to actually push this card to its complete potential as opposed to just use part of the Buffalo. Yeah, legit. Uh, last honorable mention, Vorinclex, Monstrous Raider, 4GG, 6-6, Legendary Creature, Phyrexian Praetor, Trample Haste. If you would put one or more counters on a permanent or player, put twice that many of each of those kinds of counters on that permanent or player instead. If an opponent would put one or more counters on a permanent or player, they put half that many of each of those kinds of counters on that permanent or player instead, rounded down. Uh, the only Praetor here, which is weird. Very weird. Uh, you'll have to fill me in on the story side of that. I'll, I'll figure it out eventually. Good, good. I think I'm higher on this card than you are. Which is weird, right? Yeah, I think that's a little bit atypical. I well, it, it was just like a thing we talked about, and you're like, this is gr- garbage. And I was like, well, you know, maybe it's it's got like some stuff. And then you were like, Hey, this card's actually great. And I'm just like, well, I, th- I think it's, you know, kind of medium. So like what happens? <laughs> well, uh, so there's a few points that I came around to. One of them being Castle Garenbrig exists. So this is able to play ahead of curve way more often than I would have expected. So I think that's good. That's a big I one. Also, yeah, I also think like the sagas are really good in this set and you're going to see a lot of them around standard. And there already was a really meaningful saga in Elspeth Conquers Death and Fornicleks just shut the, shuts them down. They don't work anymore. So that feels like a big get to me. The Planeswalkers are reasonable. There's a very reasonable Planeswalker in this set, maybe two or three, depending on how you evaluate the cards, but definitely one that I expect to see some play, and Vorniclex does a good job shutting that down. I think I was too focused on making sure I got paid for my Vorniclex, but it's yeah. not supposed to do that. I think it's just supposed to be a really efficient beatdown card that shuts down a lot of the potential answers to it, uh, either Elspeth Conquer's Death or uh, Binding the Old Gods. 
if those are widely played removal spells, Vorniclex will do a great job slowing that down. I also think like sorcery speed removal is apt to be played more than instant speed removal because of the power of some of the sorcery speed removal. So that speaks well in flavor in favor of haste. And just more the more I thought about the format and key features of it, the more I could see Vorniclex carving out a role. It's weird in that it's a six drop that like wants to be aggressive really badly. So I I don't know how you find that space. I mean, maybe it, it is more of a mid-range card than an aggressive card, but that's weird for a 6-6 six, six trample haster. Curve topper. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just weird for your car, curve to go all the way up to six when you're being particularly aggressive. So maybe you have other mana engines, and that's why this card is really appealing to you. You just routinely are hitting six. Maybe you're the green black deck and you're casting Binding the Old Gods and uh, you know, moving through the stages of your saga really quickly when you have Vorniclex in play, but more importantly, just getting to that mana threshold over and over. And that makes some sense to me for sure. Uh, well, I look at the mono green food decks and they're very good at getting card advantage and making sure that they play lands every turn and stuff like that. And this this card seems fine there for a lot of the reasons that you noted. And there are things like, you know, this deck is kind of mopey, but Green-Black Adventures where Edgewall Innkeeper also helps you make all your land yeah. drops and stuff like yeah. that. There have been some like Jund Monsters style of things where it's just like ramp into Goldspan Dragon. Binding the Old Gods plays well there. Goldspan Dragon means that, uh, you know, you have back-to-back haste threats. And even if you don't hit land six, like Goldspan Dragon is going to be able to help you cast this thing. So yeah. Yeah, that there's, sounds nice. Yeah, there's there's like a lot of weird spots where it's like, okay, yeah, I can actually see this going in decks, whereas Magda, for example, it's like, this this does cool things, but like, what do we do with it? And I think for Vorinclex, it's a, it's a lot easier to understand where it might fit in. Your John Monster's point has some wheels turning for me. I mean, I, I think you could Magda there if you have enough early removal and you're just like pretty removal dense, Blood Chief's Thirst, Binding the Old Gods, and just good spot removal, slow down your opponent, and then slam these massive threats in Goldspan, Dragon, and Vorniclex, potentially ahead of curve with the help of Binding the Old Gods and Magda. I like that. I'm going to I'm gonna explore that. It's the deck I'm going to build when we're done with this show. That sounds really cool to me. Okay, that's cool. I will caution that Magda is, I don't know, it's, it's probably just worse than uh, a two-man accelerant. Generic right? ramp spell, maybe. Yeah, and, maybe and it's, it's just like a really bad top deck too. Uh, unless you have a lot of ways to activate it outside of combat, you know? Yeah, we'll have to look and see if there is a vehicle we want to play, or maybe I am just supposed to play uh, our one-drop Jespera Sentinel acceleration setups, and that's good enough. We'll see. Yeah. So on to the actual top 10 list, this this card maybe is a little speculative, but... Very speculative. Potentially more busted than Harold Unites the Elves. I will say that. In Search of Greatness, GG Enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, you may cast a permanent spell from your hand with converted mana cost equal to one plus the highest converted mana cost among other permanents you control without paying its mana cost. If you don't, scry one. Okay. I don't have a lot to do with this card. I've come up with exactly one standard deck thus far. I think it looked good. Essentially an extension of the Selesnya Urian decks that I built for last standard. Uh, now with a black splash, mostly for binding the old gods, uh, which works really well with In Search of Greatness because you now get to play it in your upkeep and immediately draw. So you get the ramp 
right away if you happen to curve out into Binding the Old Gods. So that was a point very much in its favor. But also the deck is just set up to like use its mana very well, benefit from having all the mana in the world because you have your Trail of Crumbs stuff or your Gilded Gooses to activate or your Companion Urian to put in your hand. So you have all these places to dump any excess mana that In Search of Greatness allows you to access, which I think is a huge, huge, important thing for any deck using this card to be able to do. You just have to have good mana sinks, and you also just have to play basically all permanents. I don't think you can get very far from every single thing in my deck could potentially be put into play by In Search of Greatness because the windows are really small for this card to be effective. Yeah. But here's the point that sold me on it, and I made this in my article. How much mana do you have to get out of this card, assuming it's also going to sit around for the rest of the game and scry one for you on your upkeep? How much mana do you really have to get out of this before you're okay with it? And I think if you just get three mana, you're like, all right, I can live with this. Like, this isn't bad. I got a one mana return. I have this small engine for the rest of the game. I'm not disappointed in what I've been given from this card. But what if you can get seven mana from this two drop? What if you can get 12 mana from this two drop? What if it's producing 20 mana over the course of the game? That type of scaling is preposterous. And there's ways to get to that point. You have to build very hard around this card. But the reason I believe it even has potential in older formats is that you can do things to facilitate your curve. And the one that I found that I'm really excited about is Karn the Great Creator. Just being able to play Karn, immediately go get a five from your sideboard and know that it's coming in on your upkeep, assuming Karn survives is really nice. And there's already really good Karn decks. In Pioneer, I love Mono Green Devotion. I think this card just slots right in there. It's even empowering your Nykthosis, so completely fine. In Historic, I think you can look at the Paradox Engine decks. Again, another Karn deck, another deck that is basically all permanents. It works up and down the entirety of the curve. It's got its Chromatic Spheres and Tekinen. Three Drop is a little dicey. You might have to work that one out. But you're able to work up and get mana over and over. And you just don't need to pull that much mana out of this card before it starts doing really silly things. And we've seen that. We've lived through that with Fires of Invention, with Wilderness Reclamation, with Omnath. If you get mana return from your permanence, you can pull so far ahead of your opponent. This has the potential to do so. It just has a lot of hoops to go through. And I, I can't hi- have it higher than number 10 because of that reason, but its potential is through the roof. Emery's a three drop. Emery's a three drop. Yes, it is. Really nice one. Which which is funny because I, I think the best way to actually abuse abuse this card, like going back into older formats, is with, cost reduction. Yeah, cost reduction type of stuff yeah. like that, where you know maybe you have like a Gurmig Angler into a Gristle Brand or whatever. You can already kind of do that with like Neoform and Eldritch Evolution and stuff like that. But yeah, Emery, uh, Leyline of Abundance is another one that I think is potentially very good. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's 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 a lot of hoops to jump through. And I think the most important thing about this isn't necessarily like, well, how much mana do you have to get from this to make it worth it? Because there is a certain point where you are jumping through hoops in the early, early stages of the game trying to get this to trigger where you're just falling so far behind that it doesn't really matter how much mana this gives you as a return, right? Sure, sure. So I think that you need to be able to consistently get a return on this either, uh, you know, maybe not the next turn, but certainly the turn after where you're getting a return on your investment in tempo wise, you know, because if you're like spending your time spinning your wheels and that's 
kind of what your your deck has to do to some degree in order to make sure that this is active and you have like the right mana cost and stuff like that. You need to make sure that the stuff that you're doing with it isn't just more wheel spinning. Yeah. No, very, very true. I think that's a good analysis. Uh, your point of memory is, is really exciting, actually, because you can put together some very fine curves where you go like chromatic sphere on one uh, in search of greatness on two, put in a two drop on, you know, Mindstone or whatever on your upkeep because you have the chromatic sphere still in play. Then you play Emery for one. Your next upkeep is putting Karn into play. And then you just go get Paradox Engine and cast it like on the spot. And yeah. I mean, that's that's explosive. That's really, really good stuff. No, nah, man, you can go like Elf into Mox, Kinnon, Sphere, Emery this probably. Sure. Yeah, if we you were know? to get real crazy. And then, yep. yeah, you just like Karn Engine kill them. I mean, it's... It, obviously, if you have like Kin and Emery, et cetera, on turn two, you probably don't need this, right? You're probably just going to okay. have, you know, 10 yeah. mana on turn three. But yeah, it is it is definitely very interesting. I'm excited for the card. I'm excited to build around it. I, th- I think it's not going to spawn a bunch of decks, but it has the highest potential to spawn an actual, actual broken deck, not just the colloquial way we use that term. It, it could be bannable. Whereas I don't see that from a lot of other cards. I'm not saying it is. I'm not saying I'm worried about it. It's just the potential is there for the most possible output. In standard, I want to build some sort of Urian deck with sagas because obviously mm-hmm. you need a bunch of permanents. And in mono green food, uh, because Trail of Crumbs fuels this, finds this, whatever. And then you also have things like Bonders Enclave to kind of like keep the engine going, which is what you noted. So you need ways to spend your mana. I definitely agree with that. So I think that those are probably the two best homes. Cool. Number nine, Asika, God of the Tree, one GG, one four legendary creature god, Vigilance. Tap, add one mana of any color. Other legendary creatures you control have Vigilance and Tap, add one mana of any color. There's also a backside... It is Wooberg, five total mana, one of each color, legendary enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, reveal cards from the top of your library until you reveal a creature or planeswalker card. Put that card onto the battlefield and the rest on the bottom of your library in any order. The backside I'm not super excited about because of the delay, but uh, it is definitely like a potentially strong permanent, but it's also weird because you're playing like these low impact things like Asika to find with this. So I don't know about all that, but... In the context of being a mana engine, a mana fixer, stuff like that, I am really excited about this card. And there are a lot of solid gods in the set where you can kind of just mash them all together into one deck and end up with something that looks pretty reasonable. Yeah, you've been the one doing most of the work with this card. uh, And I think your concepts were good enough to talk me into having it on my top 10 Certainly very creative stuff, uh, even like World Tree decks looking to exploit this card or going really hard down the legendary path. There, there's a lot of looks you've shown me where I see what this card is capable of doing. Maybe it can just be played as a fair card too. Like I, I think the body is okay-ish and you only need to pick up a couple other legends where the mana output starts to become really important. And there's good legends. There's good legends in this set. There's good legends in other sets. Uh, you know, we have all our companions to look at. So plenty of good options to get a little mana out of with Asika. And I'm like you, I don't, I'm not impressed by the backside, but it's nice to have the option, uh, especially when Asika is making it 
pretty trivial to cast in a lot of spots. So yeah, it, it basically just gives you duplicate protection. Yeah. And I think that's important with all of these gods is just you have the option to do something else. And we talked a lot about flexibility and how important that is to empowering cards in this set. And I'm, I'm looking through our entire list right now. A lot of double face cards on this list. So. Right. Asika uh, with Kinnon, again, is yep. another thing where it's like, oh, OK, this is just like preposterous amounts of mana. This is the Kinnon set. Apparently, there's there's a lot of stuff that goes well with it. Yeah. So Yo Man had posted a, a couple lists. I don't remember like the exact details, but like once I saw that, that was kind of the the inspiration where all of the pieces started coming together. So you have like Jaspera Sentinel, Magda, Kinnon. Like that's that's a pretty nice package. And then you have uh Kasima God of Voyage having the vehicle on the backside as another way to enable Magda. And then mm-hmm. you have like Asika and all these gods. So it's like you, you have this really nice looking mana package. And then it's just like, okay, what do we do with it? And I think some people were like, well, let's play the stupid artifact and the world tree and put all our creatures into play. And it was like, actually, I'm pretty sure you can just build a deck with gods and you don't need the mask because there's Perforos to give yourself haste. There's older things like, you know, Nylea, Kolvori, Asika. Uh, Kasima, it's just like all of these gods are worth playing. And uh, I, I wrote an article this week where I had one of those decks in it where the World Tree was not the first thing that you were trying to do, but it was a pretty free-ish endgame option that just put like 25 power with haste onto the battlefield. So it's like, okay, you know, maybe maybe this is a thing. And in the meantime, you could be like casting dragons, you could be casting Genesis ultimatums, you can just do kind of whatever you want. Does Genesis Ultimatum make it through its existence in standard? I think so. I think there are enough like random hate cards, right? Like now there's, and I, I think that trying to hate out specifically Genesis Ultimatum is a bad idea a lot of the time. So like the two mana mm-hmm. artifact, I don't think is very good because they'll like trim on Ultimatums or, you know, just do whatever. They can just ignore it. But like Redain is uh, a good one where, it actually does punish you for trying to invest in stuff like that. And there's, you know, disdainful stroke and a lot of other sort of counter spells. So I think, I think the tools exist to just kind of like shut it down if it ever becomes too good. Okay. I think it's a, a real limiter on the format. As long as people talk themselves into playing it, if the metagame gets real hostile, maybe it just goes away, but th- there's a lot of stuff you just can't do because that card exists. And I think it's like all the, the mid-rangey non-blue stuff. You're just you're priced into something like Disdainful Stroke or you're just going to get hard outscaled. It's the thing that I just couldn't shake when I was building like my Urian In Search of Greatness deck is that I could just get Genesis Ultimatumed and I don't know that In Search of Greatness makes me fast enough where I can play through that with Disruption like Duress right. or Elspeth's Nightmare. And, and maybe it's a plan. Whereas like Green White had no plan. Now that you've added Black, you do have some plan, but it's tough. It's really tough. I, I like the idea of there being like a go big ceiling on a format. I don't like it when that thing costs seven mana and it's like trivial to cast. Yeah. Yep. So if if ultimatum, like I, I get why it's seven, you know, it's cute. It goes with all all the other ultimatums and everything, but it's like, you know, maybe, maybe uh, five is too many cards or all the permanence is too many or whatever. There's There's something where it's just like, this is too much for too little, and it really does hamper the ability of even things like you know mono green food, where it's like oh look at mm. look at me doing all these cutesy things, and then you just get 
ultimatumed into like Terror of the Peaks and Beanstalk Giant, you just die. Yeah. And there's there's no real room for you to really explore these perpetual motion machine type of decks too. And even something like Green Black Adventures is kind of like that. You know, it's like they're they're like a turn eight, turn nine deck, and you get ultimatumed on six, and you're now you're just so far behind, or you just outright died that you can't really do anything. And I, I think that that's too soon for standard. I agree with you. Uh, I think it's one of the more unfun cards that is left around standard, uh, having now trimmed a lot of the fat off the format. It, it wouldn't shock me if it ultimately goes away despite the limitations just because of that factor. Like, I think it's just kind of miserable. And the whole leaning into grabbing a bunch of cards off the top of your deck and randomly throwing them onto the battlefield, I I really hope we get away from that at some point. It just, it doesn't work for me. It obviously works for some people and they enjoy that spin the wheel type thing. But every time it's hit really hard in constructed formats, I've just been miserable with it. Uh, yeah. Collected company, uh, Etherworks Marvel. I, I don't know. It, it just doesn't work for me as a concept. I, I think it's interesting in that it, it's not like illusions of grandeur donate or whatever, where I've assembled my combo and now you died. It's magic is is now kind of like I've assembled my combo and we'll see what happens. And chances now are, I'll annoy you to death for the yeah, next six turns. You know, chances are that the thing that I'm doing is going to be very powerful, even if it doesn't outright kill you. And I think that there is some feel bad involved in. I assembled my thing and you just lose and there's nothing you can do about it. But I also don't think that this is a good solution to that because, yep. you know, there, that then you are now the player who is like opting into this experience because it's like kind of this busted thing. Right. And you just have these failed cases and like it doesn't it doesn't like feel good really for anyone. And it's not like, you know, you get any sort of like level up or learning moments out of it or anything. It's just a massive disappointment Right. And, you know, we're, we're not variance haters. Like, I think you and I are of the, as far as the spectrum goes, we're on the more welcoming end of variance and accept variance very, very happily, knowing it's a critical part of the game. But there are different ways to experience variance, in my opinion. And this is one that I don't love. It's just a little bit too facial for me. Yeah, the the variance of like, oh, am I going to draw, you know, my third land? Like you get a good sweat on that turn or like on the last turn of the game, am I am I going to hit my 50-50 to win the game? You know, yeah. those those things are exciting, dynamic moments. Not like, oh, we played this nice game and then it just ends. Like the game always ends in a coin flip, you know, like that is not good 100% of the time. Yeah, I'm with you. Number eight. Goldspan Dragon, 3RR, 4-4, Creature Dragon, Flying Haste. Whenever this attacks or becomes the target of a spell, create a treasure token. Treasures you control have tap, sacrifice this artifact, add two mana of any one color. Kinnon works with treasures. <laughs> so these things yeah. are sweet. Uh, yeah, and the, the deck I talked about that you were putting together, uh, use that very effectively. And... I don't have too much to say about this card. I just think it's very good. I think 4-4 four, four, Flying Haste for 5 is still an acceptable rate in Constructed Magic. I think the immediate return on this card is very worthwhile. The fact that you can do things like jam with it immediately and then hold up your, your Snakeskin Veil or your Negate, whatever you want to do, you have a lot of options to protect this. And I imagine that will be a 
popular play pattern. And then you can just kind of go off with this card in some spots. If you're doing things like you said with Kinnan and putting it together with Magda, I, I do think it has potential for real explosive turns where you just dump your entire hand onto the battlefield. And in its fail case, you got a treasure out of it. That's not the best deal I've ever heard. But Dude, I didn't it, even think acceptable. about this. I didn't even think about this with Vale. Yeah. I, it's, I, I it's, mean, just, it's just free. It, yeah, it's got a it's got a bunch of really good protection setups. And like again, going back to the Jund monsters type thing, you have all these things you're investing huge amounts of resources into, and your curve is really, really intense. But if this one is protected really safely, and if you're able to use Vorniclex to kind of shut down another portion of the removal spells that are apt to be targeting you, I think you get to a really safe place for actually investing in these expensive creatures that don't come with a spell attached to them. Now they come with haste. So like haste is sort of a spell attached in some ways, but still the point remains where without a enters the battlefield trigger, we haven't been able to play a lot of cards in recent standards. And I think these cards did a really nice job of making themselves playable, particularly Goldspan Dragon. I'm really excited about it. Uh, this is also a big red card if you want to do stuff like that. Sure, yeah. Like this, this curves into Ugin pretty well. I think so. Yeah, it's a little weird that, you know, you, you need your Ugin to then minus at the right size. But I have a feeling if you've been attacking with Goldspan Dragon, you're just plussing Ugin anyway and wrapping up the game real quick. Yeah, also acceptable. Number seven, Jorn, God of Winter, 2G, 3-3, Legendary Snow Creature, God. Whenever this attacks, untap each snow permanent you control. Backside is Cauldring, the Rhyme Staff, 1UB, Legendary Snow Artifact. Tap, you may play target Snow Permanent card from your graveyard this turn. If you do, it enters the battlefield taps. I'm not ignoring a card that can potentially double my mana. Right? That's all I have to say. I, I don't even have many great lists for this yet. I, I've seen good ones. I've played this in a few places, but... I don't even know that I've maximized it yet. I just know I can potentially double my mana, and that's really all I need to know. We've done this a bunch of times now. It's not a safe thing to do. Shark Typhoon. Uh, there's the 3UU Snow Instance that scries 30 and then draws three cards. Mm-hmm. There's there's a lot of ways to weave extra mana into like the double untap to you know float during combat and stuff like that. That's just like another thing that makes this card pretty powerful. It's not like you get four and four, right? Is you get potentially eight to yep. to make like a giant shark if you want to. And then there's just the backside, which is like if you're interested in that sort of thing, there's some snow self mill type of stuff. Uh, there's also the aspect where in the late game, if you had a Jorn that died, this now has kicker where you can just play the backside and then immediately use it to bring back a Jorn. So it is. It just seems like a very powerful card to me. Yeah, and I'm not trying to harp on this card because obviously I could just mention it with every creature, but one of the reasons why, again, Snakeskin Veil was really high on my list was that if you make creatures that can double your mana, then I'm going to protect them. I'm going to find ways to protect them. And I think maybe Snakeskin Veil is part of that, just making sure you're always routinely getting these things and you're also increasing the body size of Jorn so it's able to attack more efficiently. I think that's an important part of the puzzle. So... I, I'm just into this card as a concept. I don't even have my homes worked out for it yet, but all the parts work. It doubles your mana. That's all you really need to know. Maybe, maybe we'll regret not having it higher on my list. Entirely possible. Uh, same with this one. Number six, Redain, God of the Worthy, 2-dub, two 2-3, two legendary creature god, flying vigilance. 
Snow lands your opponent's control, enter the battlefield tapped. Non-creature spells your opponent's cast with converted mana cost four or greater cost two more to cast. And there is a backside, which is maybe... Eh, it's not quite as bad as the Sika's backside, but it's close. Valkamira, Protector Shield, three dub, legendary artifact. If a source an opponent controls would deal damage to you or a permanent you control, prevent one of that damage. Whenever you or another permanent you control becomes the target of a spell or ability an opponent controls, counter that spell or ability unless it's controller pays one. And it's it's not bad. It's just like, how often are you going to cast that versus the front side? Yeah, I think it's very narrow, which is totally acceptable because the front side is quite good. I, I think abstractly, I'm not as high on this effect as you are, but what sells me on it is the fact that it lines up so well with the most important cards in the format. And we keep talking about these non-creature effects that are hard limitations. And all these decks can exist because you know you're going to get to seven mana and be shut down uh, by a Genesis Ultimatum. Or you're going to get to eight mana and be shut down by Ugin and there's nothing you can do. Well, moving that two turns into the future, really, really important if the more fair decks are going to have a good chance of success. And Redain just does a great job of that. Uh, Embercleave gets hit by this. The Great Henge gets hit by this. I think Gruul is still the best deck in the format right now. I think everything should go through a lens of Gruul. So effectively limiting both those cards is going to be really important. I just think given what the format is about, this card is even better than it looks on its face and it looks completely fine on its face. There's nothing wrong with this card. It's just better than it reads. And then it's a random snow hater too. Yep. Yeah, is- and if Jorn's as good as we think it is, that that could be very important as well. Yeah, and this is not symmetrical. So you can be the person with the Embercleave or the person with the Great Henge or whatever, and your opponent basically you know can't play there, so they're always playing behind. Mm-hmm. And uh, Into the Story is a- another one where so you think about the standard decks from last season, right? And they all have this absurd top end that Redain hits. Yeah, it's just a case of a card being really well suited for what's going on around it. And uh, I, I think it deserves more respect than I've seen it getting in most places. I don't think people are all that high on this card. Yeah, I don't really get it. I wrote my article about this this week. I am not one to write about white cards or build uh, white-based decks a lot of the time. But this was the one where it, it kind of had me go back to my roots of like, you know, the white mid-range aggressive deck. You know, like a, a good Orzov disruptive aggro deck. I, I love really those decks. Like. Yeah. Yeah, me too. And I, I've tried building them over and over over the past couple of years, and they're always so bad. But maybe this is what we need to get the ball rolling. Yeah. And I'm uh, Usher of the Fallen is the other card where it's like, okay, you know, we had Season Hallowblade, we had Skyclave Apparition. Now we have a, a actual like widespread of things to do in white that I think is reasonable and and makes me want to build decks around them sure number five showdown of the scalds two r dub saga chapter one exile the top four cards of your library until the end of your next turn you may play those cards chapter two and three are both whenever you cast this cast a spell this turn put a plus one plus one counter on target creature you control urian stuff uh aggro top end stuff uh dried of the elysian grove nonsense potentially uh, what else? That all sounds good. I I think this card being previewed so early in the season has worked against its hype level. I yes. don't see a lot of decks using this card. But I think, like again, if white-based 
mid-range slash aggro is going to be part of the format, it's going to need to do things like this. It's going to have to have rebuilds against sweepers, against just decks that are capable of going really large. And uh, if you're going to play into the late game, you need to do so successfully. I think the counter ability is being underappreciated. People are just reading this as a draw four, which like, okay, that that's good. Like, that's fine. You can You can just see it as that. And I still think it's playable, but the counters are going to be more impactful than people believe they are. White has some really good recipients of those counters, creatures with vigilance like Redain, uh, creatures with built-in protection, modes like seasoned hollow blade you're just going to get paid a bunch and red benefits from making these creatures larger because you have things like ember cleave so i believe this is an important part of the more traditional looking aggressive decks and there's enough going on in terms of their ability to limit the big spell decks that i am at least going to build them it wouldn't surprise me if they don't keep pace just because it's an outmoded way of playing the game of magic in a lot of ways but we're closer than we have been for a long time. That's what I'll say. Yep. Number four, Egon, God of Death. 2B, 6-6, legendary creature god, death touch. At the beginning of your upkeep, exile two cards from your graveyard. If you can't, sacrifice this and draw a card. Backside is Throne of Death. B, legendary artifact. At the beginning of your upkeep, mill a card. 2B, tap. Exile a creature card from your graveyard. Draw a card. The hallmark of a good DFC is you play them 50-50. Yeah, I think that's exactly where we lie with this card. Both sides excellent. Uh, Both benefit an already existing, already very good archetype. Both have me interested in exploring other archetypes. Uh, The... You know, we've we've discussed several ways you can benefit from getting a bunch of cards in your graveyard, and there's a lot more. There's other ways to benefit from that effect, and just six six for three mana is still good enough, even these days, especially when you get return on it if you can't continue to exile from your graveyard. So uh, I think both halves of this card are excellent. I think either of these could probably exist as a card on their own, and I don't know that they'd be this high on our top ten list, but I think they'd be playable for the most part. So you put the two together, they're really synergistic with each other. You can just put four of this in your deck and not really worry about it, which is a good feature for these gods to have. So uh, yeah, total believer in this card. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty high on uh, Rakdos's, like maybe, maybe not power level, but just like the, the amount of synergy that it has when you have Throne of Death mm-hmm. is, is very high and makes me very happy to try out that deck again. I think it still has a lot of the same problems that it did. But, you know, maybe this is enough to just be like, okay, well, you have you have more self-mill stuff, you have uh, a bigger clock, maybe you can alter your deck a little bit because of those things, and maybe it becomes, uh, like, actually tier one again. So I'm, I'm pretty excited to, to try this out, and like you said, I think this does slot into a lot of different archetypes. Maybe not as good as it's going to be in Rakdos, but it's still solid. Yeah, I also think Rakdos just benefits immensely from points where it's not the focus and people aren't really accounting for it. And I I can't see the start of this format being a Rakdos focus format. Now, maybe that'll change in two days when this card is everywhere and people realize how good it is. But at least like day one, I think you're pretty safe playing Rakdos and not expecting to face hate card after hate card. Agreed. Number three, Doomscar. Three dub dub sorcery, destroy all creatures, foretell one dub dub. In my mind during preview season, I was like, they're definitely going to make a foretell wrath. And I thought it was going to be uh, two dub dub. So this is very generous. I think so. I think this is the one where 
the cost was aggressive and the other foretell card I believe in, where there's not many foretell cards I believe in, I will say that the nature of foretell, just the very rules text of you can't do it all in one swoop. And that means that if you don't draw this prior to turn two, or you have like a tapped land, you're not really getting much upside for it. Like there really is a small window to make this card excellent. If you hit that window, it's the best wrath maybe ever. I, I don't think that's pushing too far. And it's important because it, it wouldn't really matter that this card existed if there wasn't such a pressure from the format to be able to sweep that early. And if traditional ways of doing so worked, like in the past, you could use something like a two damage to all creatures as your early sweeper or a infest minus two, minus two to all creatures as your sweeper. Love and that was good. Beast, lol. Right. There's too <laughs> many. I mean, there's so many cards that just absolutely laugh at the idea that you're going to control them by uh, attacking their their back end, their toughness. So getting access to this card feels important for the present state of standard. I am not 100% sure it's just going to supplant Shatter the Sky. I think it may supplement it in some cases because five is a lot. And if you, do, like I said, if you don't foretell it, on turn two, you're really just not getting much of a discount anymore. Although splitting it can matter. I mean, having up counter magic on a future turn, the window where that will actually change things is pretty small. You're mostly talking about like turn six. So now three mana to wrath, three mana to hold up, or turn five, three mana to wrath, two mana to hold up a counter counter spell. It, it, it's small. It's small where that's going to come into play, but it, it works. I think there's some good mind games with it too. I talked about how in open deckless scenarios, I you may have to diversify in your sideboard just a small amount and find another Fertel car, card just so they can't always say, yes, this is 100% certainly Doomscar. I think a little bit of uncertainty goes a long way with a card like this. And for the decks that are going to be playing multiple Fertel cards, something like uh, Blue-White Control, I think they get a lot of benefit from the uncertainty that Doomscar brings to the table. And if you are foretelling something on turn two and you're, pl- you're, you're playing against someone who foretold something on turn two and you're the aggressive deck, you have to at least stop and think. You can't necessarily dump everything onto the battlefield because you can just get Doomscar on the spot. Nah, just play Redain. It'll be fine. Well, that's one way to do it for sure. <laughs> yeah, this, this card is nice. Uh, I, I think that, like I said, it is very generous, but... I, I also think that like, it's not out of line, you know, especially with everything else that's going on. And like you noted, I mean, you have to have this on turn two. It's not like you could top deck it on turn three and be fine or whatever. Uh, and then going longer than that, it is it is significantly worse than Shatter the Sky, I think. Like Shatter has a definite drawback, but like the Wraths were usually about tempo, not card advantage. Right. So it, it didn't really punish you all that much. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I think a mix is going to be perfectly reasonable. I think that if you are just maxing on this, you're you're kind of asking for trouble. But it's also kind of weird because maxing on this adds Increases to the chances the that yeah. you have it on turn two. So I don't know. I yeah. think I think like a, a a three one or like you know two one split or something makes a lot of sense to me. Sure, I could see that being the case. Yeah, this this card is excellent. Agreed. Number two, Valky, God of Lies, 1B, 2-1, Legendary Creature God. When this enters the battlefield, each opponent reveals their hand. For each opponent, exile a creature card. They revealed this way until this leaves the battlefield, and you can pay X. 
Choose a creature card exiled with Valky with converted mana cost X. Valky becomes a copy of that card. Backside is Tybalt, Cosmic Imposter, 5BR. Legendary Planeswalker Tybalt, 5 starting loyalty. As this enters the battlefield, you get an emblem with, you may play cards exiled with this, and you may spend mana as though it were mana of any color to cast those spells. Plus two, exile the top card of each player's library. Minus three, exile target artifact or creature. And minus eight, exile all cards from all graveyards at RRR. Uh, we had a lot to say about this card a few weeks ago. I, I think it all holds. I just realized that this is definitely also going in my John Monsters deck. And yeah, dude. I have ju- I've just been briefed by my arena account. I am somehow already out of wild cards. That's just it. I, I just don't have any left because I have now have a deck with Vorniclex, Goldspan Dragon, <laughs> and Velky. So uh, yeah, that's a bit of a bummer. But uh, I we spent most of this cast talking about how good creatures are in general. Like a lot of this top ten, all of this top ten. Hold on, I'm reviewing that right now. Doomscar and and some okay, some sagas and search. Yeah, yeah, like yeah, it, yeah. It's, it is a lot of creatures for sure. A large percentage made up of creatures. Uh, Valky does a good job of both blunting those creatures and becoming those creatures. And then just the versatility. Tybalt's a real threat at seven mana. It it feels worth the seven mana. It feels like it's going to shut down uh, a lot of opposing decks. And having the versatility of a two drop that can be a seven drop, I think changes the way you play a lot of games. It goes so well with an idea like the Jun Monsters deck that can scale really well to high, high mana cost, but also has to do something early because it needs to hold pace. And, you know, Valky will get in a hit here or there, maybe become a threat on its own. And I think you'll be pretty happy in those scenarios. We also talked a little bit about older format applications. I don't know if that's going to pan out or not, but I'm going to check it out. I I don't know, man. It's like, there, there's some upgrade to things like shardless where you have to at least think about it, right? Like that deck was already almost in the range of playable and you've got another really, really good hit that you get now where I want to at least try it out. You know what's um, really depressing though is that, so shardless costs one UG, right? Yeah. Oko and Uro. Yeah. Both still uh, legal. Why would you play shardless agent, man? Because then you get a Tybalt, okay? Let me have my dreams. I'm trying to do something here. Because then I can here. ancestral. Uh. This, uh, look, I love Shardless, obviously. Obviously. It's, it's, dude, it's not even close. It's not All even right, here's close what, to being here's close. Here's what I'm going to say. Uro's not going to be here forever. Uh, Oko's not going to be here forever. Even in those formats, I, I don't see them permanently being a part of the landscape. And if, they've made it so that, long at this point. If that's the case, then yeah. If if both of those get whacked, then yeah, maybe Shardless is, you know, like solid tier two again. I'd be down with that. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, look, that's not why this card is here. It's here because I think it has really good standard applications. And don't sleep on having a two drop and a seven drop in the same card. It, it just, it's what mid-range needs these days because they are kind of lacking in that modality. Whereas Every other deck just can do every possible thing. And if you're trying to play straight mid-range, you're often torn between a really linear game plan that is often exploitable. But this goes in a couple different directions, and I, I really think it's an important step forward for those type of archetypes. Yeah, good good with Goldspan Dragon, too. Uh, that's that's uh, This is another card that that can potentially accelerate into. And the decks in standard, like the more controlling decks, Rogues, Urian, it's like you have creatures that actually snipe with Valky. So it yep. is, it is kind of like... This thing that's going to give you some information, which is nice. Yeah. 
and it is sort of a must kill. You know, they want to get their thing back. It is funny to me, though, that if they uh, say, say they're on the play, right, and they like foretell a card and you Valky them, you still don't know if they have the Wrath or not. Yeah. Which is kind of cool. But yeah, I, I like the information hiding aspect of Fertel a lot. I, I think it's cool. Uh, it just is a very tempo clunky mechanic, but there's some neat stuff going on. I'm also concerned about zones, quite frankly. I don't think Arena handles zones well at all, and I oh, think they really yeah. need to look at how they're doing them. So, oh man, that you could, just you just made me so depressed. I know. I know. I, I am optimistic because I don't think it's that hard of a fix. Like, I think you just need some different colored borders to be routinely assigned to things and you're probably okay. But there's just nothing right now and it's it's absolutely miserable. No, the problem is that they display your hand in the middle and fan it out rather than like, you know, fully along the bottom of the screen or whatever. Sure. And different colors would help. But like when I get to, yeah, I think about like Rakdos or the even like the Omnath decks. The Omnath decks were the worst, right? Because like you have a bunch you have a bunch of cards in your hand, a bunch of Uros, a bunch of cards exiled from Escape the Wilds, but it's like we yeah. have Showdown of the Scalds. We have, you know, these these different zones with uh Fertel and uh Escape and everything. It's bad. It like you need to completely redo what it looks like. And also please give me the ability to turn off the backgrounds and just put it in simple mode, please. Uh yeah, I would enjoy that as well. I don't know. We're coming to uh, Android, though. Any day now, we'll be able to play Arena on Android somehow. So Yeah. So, like, Samsung, like, the Galaxies had the thing where they they just, like, spontaneously combusted, right? Yeah. You, you think that's going to happen with, yes. with anyone's phones I, on Arena? Yes. Considering what it does to my computer, I would be very surprised that phones are able to survive actually running Arena. Yeah. I... So like I, I played uh, some some Genshin Impact on on my phone, you know, basically like you can't play the, the you can play the full game. It's just really hard, but it's just mm. like there are just certain things that it's it's like nice to do on mobile rather than like logging onto the game or whatever. Sure. And e- even just like on the lowest graphical settings and like a relatively new iPhone, it's just like this is this is kind of toasty, you know. And God forbid you're trying to like charge your phone while also playing the game. And it's like I can't imagine what Arena is going to do to phones. Uh, especially if you can't turn down like the graphical settings and the memory leaks and stuff like that. It's, it's so weird that like you're able to just make software that sets phones on fire and like, yeah. that's acceptable. Yeah. Just, Why? It, Why should that be something you can do? Cause, cause it gets to the app store and then people, you know, buy it or whatever. And then their phone explodes and they buy a new phone. It seems like that should be part of the, everybody thing. wins. Everybody yeah. wins. Capitalism undefeated again. Yeah. Another one on the scoreboard. Reigning undisputed champion of the universe. (laughs) Anyway, yeah, good times. Android users, let me know. Let me know how it goes. Yeah, looking forward to hearing your experience. Number one, Cosima, God of the Voyage. This is is funny because I just randomly saw this uh, at the tail end of recording the last show. Yeah, and we had to give some really quick impressions of the card. Yep. Uh, So to you, 2-4, legendary creature god. As as Paulo put it, <laughs> this is a reading comprehension test. Which I, I think I failed on the first pass, but I'm pretty sure I passed uh, on my second go around. So, At the beginning of your upkeep, you may exile this. If you do, it gains whenever a land enters the battlefield under your control. If this is exiled, you may put a counter on it. If you don't, return this to the battlefield with X plus one plus one counters on it and draw X cards, where X was the number of counters on it, voyage counters. Do you want to like go through this slowly 
the the reading a comprehension part of it because I feel bad with the DFCs where I'm just like blah here are like two cards. I I think unless our listeners have spent time with this card and thinking about this card, no matter what we do, we're just not going to be able to convey what it does all that effectively. Like you have to have done some homework to get this one, and there's no way to solve that. And I feel bad about it, but this this is a wordy one for sure. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So the front side, it's it's a DFC, right? It's a three mana yes. two four god. Yes. At the beginning of your upkeep, you can exile it. When it's in exile, choice. when it's in exile, you have landfall, either put a voyage counter on this. Uh, wait, hold on. Yeah. Okay. So it has landfall. You can either put a voyage counter on it or bring it back. Yes. And when it comes back, you get plus one, plus one counters and draw X cards where X is the number of voyage counters on it. So. Okay. That, that was good. Concise. I felt like you did something to clarify it there. Maybe it was just using the landfall keyword was enough to make it a little bit more concise yeah it's it's this two four it can stick around you can exile it and then landfall immediately bring it back if you want to for whatever reason or it basically just like chills in exile accumulates these counters and then when you're ready for like this burst of cards and this big threat you can play your land and bring it back so totally fine card on its face two four for three you're not writing home about it but the body will matter in some spots it is trivially easy to turn this into a large number of cards and it doesn't take all that much work you remember aeon chronicler you're old enough to remember aeon chronicler hell yeah i do i have a i have an awesome aeon chronicler story uh but yeah i i almost use that in in kind of like the description of the card where it's like it's like a backwards chronicler yes yeah i think that's a fine way of looking at it and so you just play this card fairly, you know, your typical blue deck, put it into play, maybe makes a block for you immediately. You're going to appreciate that, save you a little life. And then it's time for it to go on its voyage, spend some time out of the battlefield doing other things. Maybe a second Kasima comes down in that window because it's safe from the legendary effect now and can just hold the fort while this other one accumulates counters. And maybe you just bounce them back and forth routinely with the world's your oyster, do whatever you want. Where it gets real exciting, I think, is where you're just bursting a bunch of lands onto the battlefield. And you're expending all your resources to explosive vegetation or whatever whatever way you've chosen to start a snowball in much the same way we used to do it in the Omnath decks, maybe. Uh, maybe you are going as far as Genesis Ultimatum. But you, you've started down this path of spending all your resources to generate mana. And then usually what happens at the end of that is you try and resolve like your KO from all that mana, or you have to find a way to reload because you've built a huge mana base, but you don't necessarily have the payoff. This gets to be the payoff by just being a tremendous body. It's your refuel because now it's got all these counters stacked on it because you put a bunch of lands onto it. And, and it just does this other alternate mode which enables a whole different style of gameplay that you can really benefit from. If it only did those two things, I think I think it would be fine. But the fact of the matter is the backside of this card is also really, really good, maybe better. And I think the front side is excellent. So when I say that, I, it's a really big swing. The other thing I'll say too is that that trigger, when you're drawing all those cards, 
you can't interact with that. That's not getting countered. So those cards are just coming to your hand one way or another. And I think there's so many decks that are going to be able to successfully, even decks that are playing fair, just your typical blue-white control deck, you're going to play this card, immediately send it to exile, and it's just going to be there hovering over the game. And you're able to deploy it exactly when you need to. You wait as long as you can. Maybe you get three cards and you get paid with a a 5-7 that can now shut down your opponent's 6-6. And it's really, really impactful like that. Or maybe you only get one card and it quickly comes back, but it still has a good body and you've basically gotten a return on your investment. Unless it's killed right away, it's really hard for you to come out behind on this card. And again, that's just the front side. Yeah, so it it does have to live through the turn, right? So that's kind of tricky. And... It, this is another Body's one. good for that, though. Two, four. Like it is. Two, four, three mana. Like, it is. You're pretty good sizing. Absolutely. Definitely agree with that. Um, but it, it's also one of those things, kind of like In Search of Greatness, where you're spending mana, and yeah, you have this window where you have the two, four on the battlefield, whatever. But if you send this to exile, you just invested mana for, for basically no gain, right? So you need to not fall behind in, in the meantime, which... You know, you just build your deck around that, right? Like maybe you have a bunch yep. of spot removal spells, disruption, whatever. Sweepers. Sweepers yeah. are great with Kazima. Yep, of course. So there are ways to make it work. And then if if you're doing the fair thing where you're just playing like a land per turn, then this, this isn't going to be like super mega impactful uh, until fairly late. But... It, even things like Fable Passage, right? It's just like, oh, okay. Mm. Like now, instead of getting like two cards, I'm getting three. And like that, that's a huge difference, right? Yes. Uh, but yeah, if, you, if you're doing like Dried of the Elysian Grove stuff, Genesis Ultimatum, whatever, and then eventually you're just like, well, I'm, I'm kind of out of gas. I guess I'll make my land drop, bring this thing back and draw fresh five or seven or whatever. It's like, you know, that's, that's a pretty absurd engine. You know, it's very low opportunity cost. Yeah, I, I think the opportunity cost thing is a great way to look at it, especially because, again, there's another mode to this card, which somehow uh, is just as impactful. Yeah, backside, the Omen Keel, 1U, 3-3, legendary artifact vehicle, crew 1. Whenever a vehicle you control deals combat damage to a player, that player exiles that many cards from the top of their library. You may play lands from among those cards as long as they remain exiled. So the Omen Keel fuels Kasima and makes it yes. so that you're probably just going to be able to make a land drop every turn and charge charge up Kasima however far as you want to. This is this is crew one. That's incredibly low. Two mana for a three three. That's solid. When it deals damage, you exile that many cards. It's not just like, oh, you know, you exile one card or whatever. So this thing, if it is able to connect you you should just be making land drops off of this thing for the rest of the game. And like, obviously there are some things where it's like, well, I, I have to play my own land because I have to fix my colors now, you know? Uh, and that's fine. But you still keep that land. Even if the Omen Keel dies, you still keep that land drop though. It doesn't have to remain in play to true be yes. able to use it, which, which I think is a big, big change in functionality from at least what I expected. Oftentimes these cards don't work that way, but the Omen Keel does. No, you're right. So, you know, I, I was pointing out like the amount of cards, the crew cost, the stat line, whatever, basically just say that like, there are a lot of subtle ways that this is pushed and that's definitely one of them too. Yep. But, but yeah, w- one thing that this does is like, okay, so like say you get a bunch of free land drops you don't have to invest your own cards. What does that actually mean? Well, if you have these DFCs in your deck and like that's part of your mana base, now it just means that you basically just get to cast those all the time. Whenever right. you whenever you draw them, you you just get to play them as spells. And it's like maybe that's a small thing, 
but it also means that things like Amarius Call or whatever that you have on the top end for your DFCs, uh, like they're just, it's always gas, right? Which is nice. And things like Shatter Skull Smashing, those just get fueled. We talked earlier about having ways to uh, spend your mana during like, you know, In Search of Greatness or whatever. So like any utility lands you have, Crawling Barons, Maunders Enclave, stuff like that. It's like, you're going to have the mana line around to activate those things. Yeah, I I think it, it unlocks so many cards, right? Like, I don't think if this card didn't exist, you could really consider things like Ascendant Spirit or any of the other small blue creatures because they just don't really keep pace with a lot of the format. But there's like simic snow things i want to do because this card exists and there's weird tempo-y decks and unsurprisingly i want to play it with snakeskin veil and then i want to just do hard control with kasima and see how many cards i can actually pull out of it or even a more like bantish control where there's still some ramp elements and you're you're willing to uh invest a little bit in your mana base and get to a really really big top end in your control deck i I think that's promising. Uh, you could even like make a, a Bant Ugin deck that starts to make sense to me where you now have that limiter on the top end. We talked about how things could get outscaled really hard, but if you're an Ugin deck, I, I think it's easy to get away from that. And the mana getting better from this set also helps with that as well. Like It's more realistic. You can stretch into three colors. Um, but all of these plans work so well with Kasima. Your plan to do Kinnon stuff alongside Goldspan Dragon and... Uh, Magda also used this card, I think, to very good effect. Being able to crew up with Magda was dope. Uh, making your land drops very important there when you're playing Genesis Ultimatum. You get your engine online and you just get a burst of card advantage. So when I first heard this card previewed, and you all got to see my reaction live, that was legitimately the first time, time I ever heard about this card. I think I picked up on it as good pretty quickly. The more time I've spent thinking out about it, the more excited I get. And that's why it's pushed up to my number one spot. And that's not to say like, I think its power level is overwhelming. I just think it's going to be really hard for this set to fundamentally fundamentally shake up standard because there's such power points already that you need to look at new ways of playing the game if things are going to be shooken up in any large scale. And I, I think Kasima makes new ways of playing the game. That's the biggest point I can say in its favor. Yeah, it, it definitely fits into a lot of places for a lot of different reasons, right? You're talking about playing it in like a creature deck or a control deck, and that's that's really cool. I like that a lot. I like the fact that this is a, a vehicle, so it is a thing that can apply pressure, which is really relevant to... Uh, all these decks that are trying to just beat you in the late game with their big, powerful spells. So you you have this early aggressive thing that is not vulnerable to sweepers against some decks too, which was certainly part of the problem with with pure aggressive decks is like, you know, you're playing Knights or Torbrand Monoret or whatever. You get swept once and it's just like lights out basically. Yep. And yep. this helps a lot with that while also allowing you to scale into these longer games so that you can actually fight toe-to-toe with some of the bigger stuff that's going on. And then there's, yeah, like the Magda kind of like mana engine type stuff. Like that's cool too. I mean, this this card is just going to find a home in a lot of different decks. I hope so. I think it's one of the more exciting cards. It's one of the more fun cards. I also see it in some ways as like the hydroid crisis of this format. And I, I know that sounds a little weird because there's not a ton they have in common, but it's like, it's a way to refill your your late game 
at like pretty high certainty levels. It's almost impossible to stop this burst of cards the same way it was impossible with Hydroid Crisis because it was a cast trigger. And you knew you could count on turn seven, turn eight, you were going to get these rebuys. And it's a little different because you can't just rip it off the top. It needs early game setup. But I think its modality plays well for that. And I, I think there's just going to be a large amount in, of inevitability given to some archetypes that don't usually have it in the form of, I just drew seven new cards. What are you going to do about it? Yeah, I mean, there is still like the ultimatum food Embercleave problem where people just go over the top of you. But the fact that this also lends itself to being aggressive means that like that's going to be your plan A, but it it also means that you can hang with them in the mid to late, but not just the super late. Yeah, I think so. So yeah, I, I think that, you know, a lot of these cards, the DFCs, the versatility both sides being relatively powerful for a lot of them. I think that that adds a lot to standard, but this is the one where I'm just like, yeah, like both sides are, are pretty great. I'm almost certainly going to be Omen Keeling first, you know, but I'm, I'm happy with both sides. This fits into a lot of places. This is like power on both sides in kind of different ways. And that's sort of what makes this the number one card for me. Like we said, I think that the power level is relatively flat. So nothing, stands out as like, oh, well, this is busted or this is like super trash right. or whatever. So yep. I think everything is pretty close and like, you know, maybe this could have been like the number five card or, or something. It, it still would have been fine. But like the fact that I, this is one of the cards where I'm like, I want to build a bunch of decks. And that that to me is is kind of like the hallmark of a number one. Sure. I, great way to look at it. And I'm right there with you. So we're not going to do a, a question this week. Can I close with my story? Do you want to hear my Chronicler story? Yeah, I, I would like to hear your Chronicler story because it was one of my favorite cards of all time, quite frankly. Okay, so I, I don't know like how, how deep <laughs> you want me to get into this story because there's a lot of layers. But I was living in Indianapolis with Gabe Walls and Craig Kremples. Nate Price, who now works for Wizards, like a, a bunch of people. We had this We had this big house. And this was like when we were doing the poker room stuff, but it, that stuff had closed down and we were going to us nationals. And I, I built this Bant blink deck when everyone was playing like Jess guy. And I think my deck was really, really good. And Gabe played in a a 5k the week before and like won it very easily and whatever. Right. So we're, we're rolling in nationals. We're running this blink deck back. Kremples comes with, and I find out later that he just grabbed a random solar flare deck off of our poker table in the house that I was using to like test against people. And he ends up making top eight of this tournament, like not changing a card. I think it didn't have a sideboard. So he like built his own sideboard. Excellent. But yeah, I I didn't find out until like a week later where he's like, Oh, here's your solar flare deck back. I'm like, dude, what the hell? Like (laughs) whatever. This is the tournament where, uh, Luis wins with like this nonsense court of calling Ar- Arcanist deck or whatever Arcanus. I don't remember the deck. Oh man, you should you should look this up. So like, do you know Arcanus? It's like three UUU onslaught yes. fighter. Yes, yes, I do know that card. Ter- Arcanus the Omnipotent. Yeah, terrible card. Yeah, right. Now I'm starting to think I might know this deck. I'm searching for it as we speak. Yeah, so Luis, <laughs> Luis just builds this nonsense deck in, in wins nationals. Uh, Michael Jacob is on the national team. This is like one of Brad Nelson's first big tournaments. And him and Cedric kind of like 
played for top eight in the penultimate round, I think. And someone, I think Cedric kind of like got stalled out or something. It was, it was just all ridiculous. But uh, if you go back and look at, look at coverage, it's got Brad before he grew the beard. So he looks like a child. But anyway, this is like third to last round. Gabe and I are both doing pretty well with this blink deck. When we sit down at like, you know, table five and six and all of the tables are like two matches per table. So I sit down, Gabe sits down next to me and we're both wearing these MTG Chicago shirts because we're sponsored by this random dude. And across from us sits like Paul Chion and <laughs> David Ochoa. And they're both wearing like Adventures On t-shirts. So it's like they're, they're both playing like their team deck. We're playing our team deck. We have our jerseys on. They have their jerseys on. It's like this 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 grudge match, this tag team match. And Gabe, Gabe is like very, very good at magic, right? But like wasn't super up to date on what was going on with everything, right? And I think I, I finished my game one and Gabe is in sideboarding. And he's taken like a long time to sideboard because their deck is super weird because they're playing like Luis's Court of Calling Nonsense deck, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm like watching Gabe sideboard so that I can like, you know, tell him how he should have sideboarded maybe the next match or something. And he's just, you know, putting cards in, pulling them out basically at random. And I'm just like, no, don't do that. Like, ooh, okay, maybe that's good, you know. And then he'll like change it. I'm like, damn it. And I'm doing this while I'm trying to play my game too. And Gabe, <laughs> you know, he finally finishes, he shuffles, goes to present. And then Ochoa goes to like almost, you know, he's starting to like go grab Gabe's deck. To, to shuffle it and Chion suspends an Aeon Chronicler which was just the thing that they had in their sideboard or something and Gabe immediately grabs his deck back grabs his sideboard goes through the sideboard like gets the Rift Sweepers and puts those in his deck <laughs> got him <laughs> so he re-sideboards and then like quickly like shuffles presents and then just at some point like Ochoa suspends a Chronicler and is like haha like I, I got you you know this is my trump card and Gabe's like yeah Rift Sweeper it thanks that is hilarious. And I, it's it's just stuff like that where it's like, man, maybe maybe all these matches should just be played in seclusion, right? Because it's like I'm say say the situation's reversed uh or like maybe maybe not reversed, but I guess I guess this could have happened if Gabe was paying attention where like I finish and I'm I could just like sideboard where where Gabe can knowingly see it or whatever, yeah. right? You know, it's just stuff like that where it's like this is really sketchy, but it's like not really against the rules. And I was just like, this is, this situation is like hilarious. Just everything uh, about it was absurd. I always said there's like an, a weird acceptance of just hard information leaks that are completely exploitable that we just allow because it would be too much work to keep them out of the game. And you're supposed to like navigate this very gray area of, are you supposed to use that information? Like you said, not against the rules, but like it's kind of messed up at the same time. Like it's, it's definitely not the way the game is intended to be played. Right. Yeah. Other messed up thing about this tournament that I'm just remembering now is that I lost playing for top eight to Antonino DeRosa. And this was basically because of Gabe, because at some point in the tournament, Gabe just like, you know, walking around telling people how great our deck is. Like he won the 5k the week before, just like we broke it. We don't even play magic anymore. Everyone's so stupid, etc. And <laughs> Antonino's like, well, you know, you're, 
your guys is like, mana base is trash. I just like Magus of the Moon you out of my red black deck. And Gabe's like, yeah, but we're so smart. We have serrated arrows in our sideboard. We just don't even care. And I play against Antonino and he Maguses me and I serrated arrows him and he shatters Shattering Spree. Yeah. yeah. I'm, looking, I'm looking at his deck list right now. He brought in the Shattering Sprees because Gabe showed him my deck. Outplayed. Take that. Unreal, dude. That was, that was like game three, I'm pretty sure. And I'm just like, oh my God. This is. This is just absurd. These deck lists make me so happy. I don't. I don't know what the quality of this format actually was, but uh, I would like Magic to be this again, please. Yeah, Go look top top eight deck list, two thousand seven nationals. You can find it very easily if you want to look at that. There were like some some dredge decks, some tempo decks. You know, Solar Flare was kind of like the the control deck. MJ qualified with mono green aggro. Mono green Project X is in the top eight. Yeah, that's a thing. Uh, there, there was a lot of different decks. I wouldn't say that like pickles everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. I I wouldn't say that like these decks are necessarily like fun or whatever, but it's like, they're, they're kind of iconic. And to to me, they definitely are. I don't know if they share that with like, I don't know if other people feel the same way, but this feels like magic to me. Like this is iconic. Yeah. Like if, if they made like gold bordered us national versions of the, of the decks or whatever, like I would buy those. I would play with those. I, I always say I'm going to like, go to tournaments that feel like they had really good gameplay and just rebuild top eights to keep on hand. I'll never use these decks, so I'm never actually going to do it. But like in my head, it's an appealing idea. Like if I lived in a house with a bunch of magic players, it would be something I would do. But the way my life is set up, they would just sit on a shelf somewhere. I think that would be cool. Like I, I was like bringing Canadian Highlander decks around and I knew that, you know, like not, a lot of people have their own. So I would just like have a couple or whatever. And mm-hmm. uh, towards, towards the end of, of things before the pandemic, I mean, I, I played a few games with a bunch of different people and it was pretty fun, but like that, that would be a, a more fun way to do it where it's just like, you know, you have 10 of decks from this era or whatever, and you just pick them at random and play against people. I think a lot of people would want to do that. Yeah. It's weird though, because like, do you fix the decks <laughs> or do you just let them stand as they are? Uh, I'm, I might try to fix them, but I can definitely yeah. see kind of like the purest route. Right. So the, the event I always think about doing is the first pro tour. I like, I just, you know, that's when I started playing magic and I, I remember reading about the first pro tour after it happened. And like, again, a very iconic era of magic for me is it's right in my wheelhouse, but the decks are abysmal. Like they're so bad. Every right. deck is like six mana light at least. And has there's like four strip maybe there's not four strip mine there's definitely strip mine in the format so you're not even playing the game half the time and it it would be really tempting to just smooth out a lot of the problems but then you're you're losing some of the flavor i think yeah well i think that's why people started doing old school stuff right right yep but yeah good times good times man that, that's just one of those tournaments where it's like there's so many moving pieces and like good small stories where I'm just like, that was, that was a hell of a tournament. This is making me sad now. We've crossed the bridge into making me happy to making me sad that we don't, we just don't have this experience right now. And who knows when we'll have it again. But we'll end it on an optimistic note. Uh, good magic cards in this set. Stuff I'm excited to build around. And someday we're all going to be vaccinated and able to play magic together. And I, I can't wait. Build new stories. Oh, the Drake. Thomas Drake. Thomas Drake is gas. A lot of all stars in this top eight, and they had they had like a JSS running concurrently. Who's in that top eight? I didn't look at that one. Oh man! 
All right, I might I might be stuck on this coverage page for the night. <laughs> There's definitely some all stars. I see my buddy Ben Lundquist in a picture here next yep. to Paul Chiod. Yep, love it. This is good stuff. There's Craig in the picture. Yeah, everyone, go check out this page. If if you've been around Magic, you'll enjoy this. Uh, okay, so the thing the thing with Cedric and Brad was that like the the result of their match was determined by like whether or not Luis won the, his match or something, and they were sitting next mm. to each other in the feature match area. So that was another one of those things where it was just like they should they should not be able to see each other, you know, see the result right. of the match. Yep. Oh, yeah. The standings page doesn't work. No. Four four, not found. Yeah. That's a heartbreaker. Results oh. page, not found. Wow. If you want to see young Jerry, go look Are at- Are you here too? Well, there's there's uh, coverage of me versus Ant in round 13. Oh, what a young Jerry. Thompson gives his opponent the stare. All right. This probably isn't great radio at this point as we sit here and read a webpage. Everyone go enjoy this webpage with us. <laughs> And uh, we'll we'll see you next week as we talk more Kaldheim and we get our first games in with these new cards. Game. Good luck.